Good morning, everybody. You don't have to do the thing. Don't, don't say it back. <laughs> so I got asked like 400 times, I think, since last night. You know, you're talking fast. You covered 13 points. What in the world? Where are the notes? Can we get these? I just want to let everybody know a couple of things about this. First of all, the video that we're making will be available as soon as we can get it, you know, cut together. So everything that I've said will be available where you can see it for free after this. So don't stress if you're not keeping up with your note taking. Secondly, I thought I announced this last night, but I don't remember last night, basically, so uh, we were here, I think. Uh, we, I, I actually am deriving this, when, when, I, when I put this idea to do this together, I started trying to think about what I wanted to say and how I wanted to organize the material, and I was like, I should just turn this into a book. So some of you saw, if you follow me on Twitter or other social media that I announced a couple of weeks ago, I'm writing a new book on critical race theory, and I'm going to get that out as quickly as possible. Like literally, I'm just gonna self-publish it through new discourses to get it out immediately. So hopefully that'll be as early as next month uh, or whatever. And all of this in far greater depth and uh, explanation will be available in that. So if you can't keep up with your note taking, if I talk too fast for you, you breathe. <laughs> That's a joke for somebody. <laughs> No, it'll, it'll be okay. So today, last night we covered what is critical race theory. I think we arrived at a definition of critical race theory. I don't want to spend 90 minutes per talk today. I actually feel a little bit shocked at myself that I talked for 90 something minutes last night. But um, we talked about what critical race theory is and we arrived at a definition. You know, I've characterized it as a neo-Marxist conspiracy theory that forms a belief system predicated on the belief that Systemic racism created by white people for their own benefit is the fundamental organizing principle of society. And of course, we could add that that's bad and has to be overthrown by revolution. That's the neo-Marxist part. Um, so I think I made a pretty convincing case that that's a fitting definition, and I did so not by arguing my case, but just by reading theirs. And so it's immediately derivable from the things they write about themselves if you have the patience to read six pages to understand something they could have been said in two or one, or a paragraph. And sometimes they actually confess it, sometimes they literally say this is neo-Marxism or whatever. So today we're gonna to turn to the ideological roots. This morning we're gonna to turn to the ideological roots of critical race theory. Like I said last night, this stuff didn't come out of the ground when George Floyd died. This didn't just appear. I saw a chart on Twitter this morning from I think a Pew or a Gallup or something poll that said race relations in the United States. People perceive them to be much worse and the big turn started in 2013. I don't know if you know what happened in 2013. Donald Trump did not get elected president in 2013. Barack Obama did not get elected president in 2013. He did start his second term, but the Black Lives Matter movement started in 2013. Um, and people started to perceive very rapidly that uh, race relations are getting worse in the country. As I tried to, I mentioned briefly last night, um, Critical race theory exists to create polarizing environments, we'll talk about this this afternoon, to create polarizing environments so that it can scoop up sympathizers to its cause. It is intentionally divisive, but intentionally divisive in a particular way so that it will radicalize certain people who it says have a critical race consciousness to its cause. And raising consciousness in that regard is a Marxist or neo-Marxist project. There's kind of a continuity through all of Marxism and neo-Marxism about consciousness raising to get past false consciousness or internalized dominance or internalized racism as it might get expressed in critical race theory. 
or you know, the willful ignorance of white privilege, which is sometimes called white ignorance, or in Barbara Applebaum's phrasing, white ignorance or color ignorance to make it like it's very intentional that people who are benefiting from privilege will ignore it. Um, so today the goal is, or this, this morning, this, this lecture, the goal is to connect neo-Marxism to, or I think we connected neo-Marxism, is to explain neo-Marxism and what neo-Marxism is, but also to show you where critical race theory diverges from neo-Marxism in its true old school sense because it incorporates postmodernism. Now, of course, Cynical Theories is available out there. Most of you have it or have read it. Many of you have had me sign it, so I know many of you have it. <laughs> Cynical Theories tells the story of the postmodern influence on all of these different identity Marxist studies, as we might call them. Identity Marxism as an offshoot of cultural Marxism. Um, it tells the story of critical race theory in chapter five. It tells the story of how this happened in the postmodern context through chapters one and two, and then picking that story up again in chapter eight. And then in each of the chapters between three through seven, it goes through, like I said, race, critical race theory is chapter five, queer theory is chapter four, post-colonial theory is chapter three, and did those backwards. And then gender studies and feminism is chapter six, and then disability studies and fat studies, chapter seven. There are a handful of other studies, but the book's already 80,000 words. But that book is about telling the story of how postmodernism is relevant to critical race theory and the other uh, so-called cynical theories of um, these uh, identity Marxist programs. I want to make the case very clearly, in that book what we argue is that, in, in kind of Helen's words, Helen Pluckrose, my co-author, in her words, the postmodern ideas were simplified and packaged up by activists who were figured out ways to put them into use. If you are a fan, and there are fans of postmodernism, I'm kind of a like very lightly quasi-fan in some sense. You can understand postmodernism as a descriptive project. I don't think that was purely descriptive. I think they're pretty cynical, nasty people. But um, as a descriptive project, it taps into some very powerful things about the era that we live in, especially now that social media has emerged. And if you understand postmodernism as a descriptive project, these so-called activists picked up those descriptions and said, oh, this is part of how the world works and then we can manipulate this. These are weapons. And those activists are left vague in cynical theories. We don't talk much about, I've kind of forced a footnote or two in there about who these activists are. This lecture today is mostly going to be about who those activists are and they are primarily neo-Marxists. They are the new left that emerged out of the 1960s, which emerged out of Herbert Marcuse, who was a neo-Marxist and it's mostly his ideology that we live in today. Uh, his major books and essays of the 1960s are the world that we currently inhabit. Postmodernism was the tool that made it possible. And so the main thing that I wanna convey in this lecture is that if we go back just over the last 100 years, I think last night I said, making fun of myself slightly, that critical race theory is the tip of a 100 year long spear. Today we're talking about the shaft of the spear, which is the neo-Marxist and cultural Marxist movement in postmodernism, postmodernism beginning later in the 1960s, neo-Marxism and cultural Marxism starting in the 1910s. So there's your 100 years or thereabouts. Antonio Gramsci, one of the leading uh, or early cultural Marxists, wrote most of what he wrote between 1916 and 1926 when he went to prison. And then he wrote his, mo his largest work in prison from then until 1937 when he died in prison. And then it was smuggled to Moscow 
Nobody's quite sure what happened with it from there until it emerged in the 60s and started showing up in other languages besides Italian and was translated into English in 1970 at Notre Dame by Pete Buttigieg's dad. <laughs> Joseph Buttigieg translated the prison notebooks into English at Notre Dame. So the story today is how did postmodernism and neo-Marxism fuse to create these identity studies fields? And that requires us to understand a little bit about critical theory, which is whether you want to call it cultural Marxism or whether you want to call it neo-Marxism, it's fine. Got to unpack a little bit of both of those terms. They're not quite identical. I don't want to get super, super deep today um, because this, the, there's a book coming. There are, I've done, I don't know, 4,500 hours of podcasts about these people. I've read several of Marcuse's works directly on the podcast. So there's lots of stuff out there. I just want to give you guys a taste. And so just to kind of like take the lie out of it, is critical race theory neo-Marxist in origin? Well, if we take out the R word in the middle and we put the two words together, what do we get? Critical theory. Okay. <laughs> Good job, detective. <laughs> Had to dig deep for that one. Um, critical race theory, if we phrased it differently, is a critical theory of race. And so critical theory, which is a synonym for neo-Marxism, or it's the tool of, I should say, neo-Marxism, is absolutely central to what's going on. If you don't believe me, Kimberly Crenshaw, I mentioned this last night, Kimberly Crenshaw herself has said repeatedly that they were critical theorists who were interested in race, and they were race scholars or race, uh, racial justice advocates who were interested in critical theory. The link is absolutely undeniable. Um, this is what's at the heart of what's going on. So we have to understand both kind of cultural Marxism and we have to understand neo-Marxism to understand critical race theory on a deeper level. We'll come back to the postmodernism and, and then we'll talk about how they got together. That's Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw's doing and the other black feminists uh, in the 1980s and 90s. So that's the overview, that's where we're going. So critical theories, I'll start there rather than with cultural Marxism. Um, Critical theories have a definition, and I just want to lay that out. This comes from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, entry on critical theory, so it's probably authoritative. Um, the definition of a critical theory is that it must, it's a theory, a social theory, and that's probably a capital T theory that derives from Marxian theory, that must contain at least three components. They all must be present or you don't have a critical theory. Component number one is it must have an idealized vision for society. Herbert Marcuse, who I've mentioned repeatedly now and will mention many more times, said that these are certain historical possibilities that have become regarded as utopian possibilities. And if you don't recognize the Marxism hidden in that phrase um, and the utopianism, the, the Marxist utopianism in that phrase, and that's a direct quote from, I think, Repressive Tolerance from 1965, then you, if you don't see it there, you don't know what's going on. Uh, historical possibilities are referring to Marxism to freeing ourselves from capitalism, which is, of course, what he was targeting. So it must have an idealized vision for society. It must be able to explain why, this is the charitable explanation on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, it must be able to explain how the existing society does not live up to that ideal vision or is not working to achieve it. And three, it must inspire social activism on behalf of achieving that perfected world. 
So you can see that what we were talking about last night with critical race theory fits very tightly into that definition. A critical theory must have a praxis attached to it. That's the social activism part. Robin D'Angelo's words, lifelong commitment to self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism. That's anti-racism in her words. So it's undeniable that critical theory is at the heart of what critical race theory is. This is what a critical theory is. Critical theory emerged, the neo-Marxist movement emerged out of a milieu in which they were looking at Western civilization and saying, why isn't this going Marxist? In fact, cultural Marxism, which preceded it, emerged out of that situation. And they said, well, it must be that Western civilization, Western culture has something to it, which Antonio Gramsci called cultural hegemony, that prevents it from opening itself up to radical cultural change to overthrowing the entire system. It must not be just the material conditions as Marx had it, because they're looking at the failures of Marxism uh, in one way or another, seeing that only in these peasant societies like Russia that it's taking root, that it failed in Hungary, that it's not happening in Berlin, that it's not happening in London, that it's not happening in Chicago or New York, where Marx predicted it would happen. They're looking at this and looking for an explanation. They say, well, it must be that the, that the bourgeoisie produces bourgeois values, and those values produce a culture, and that culture is like a force field that prevents Marxism from being able to take root. People don't want to throw away a life that they think is good for a radical change. Uh, Herbert Marcuse repeatedly says throughout almost all of his works of the 1960s that people are happy and they're content in their liberal democracies or liberal republics because they don't realize their true servitude. They don't realize that they are actually miserable. So critical theory then steps in and says everybody who accepts the existing status quo, which doesn't exist in a liberal society because liberal societies are always moving, anybody who accepts the existing status quo has false consciousness about how bad things really are. They don't know how relevant it is that these, for the neo-Marxists and the cultural Marxists, that these powerful elites in society are the producers of a culture industry that brainwashes people into liking the stuff that they have. They get up in the morning, they think, I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna go to work and I'm gonna work hard and I'm gonna make money and I'm gonna come home and I'm gonna have a middle-class house and I'm gonna buy that kind of cool car that I think makes me happy and I'm gonna you know, have some kind of nice stuff around, I'm gonna eat pleasant food, I'm gonna have a nice solid middle-class life because I'm gonna go work hard and earn that. And he says that this is actually the exploiting capitalist elites, tricking people into thinking they have a good life, again, it's a conspiracy theory, so that they'll continue to enact capitalist exploitation upon themselves. And they are falsely conscious about how the world works. They think they're happy, they experience being happy, but in fact, they're miserable, and they are in fact in servitude, which is why you often hear people in the past decade or so saying that everybody who has like a service job or whatever, or they have whatever kind of job is a wage slave. So we still have slavery because it's wage slavery. That's a neo-Marxist idea. That's a neo-Marxist idea. So it's very relevant to today still. We live, like I said, in Herbert Marcuse's world. And so critical theory was devised to pick at the existing society. I at one point said that it would be really poignant, and I don't know that I should actually do it, to bring up an American flag and make sure that I doctor it before I get here and make sure there's some loose threads and to literally deconstruct an American flag and watch it fall apart by pulling the loose threads. Critical theory exists to examine society for the loose threads so that it can pull on them so it can tear apart the fabric of society. 
That's what it exists to do. That's what a critical theory is. That's why, besides its conspiratorial nature, that's why a critical theory is never the right way to go, even to tear down an unjust power structure. There are better ways, because this is just nitpicking to tear apart everything. Critical theories think explicitly in terms of systemic power. Everything is broken down in terms of systemic power. That's still for them the capitalist elite who are now a consumerist capitalist elite who are creating a culture industry and promoting their bourgeois values to keep people trapped in their existence. Uh, those people are still in control of everything and those people are still creating class conflict across a stratification in society. And it's how do you awaken people to this? But they've abandoned what's come to be known as vulgar Marxism at this point and they're much more interested in attacking cultural institutions. So that's why it often gets conflated with or called cultural Marxism. So this is the context in which all of this exists. The biggest kind of works within neo-Marxism, you know, we'll come back to Marcuse in a minute, it really starts, although the, the, the critical theory comes out of what's called the Frankfurt School for Social Research, which was founded, I believe, in 1923 at Goethe University in Germany, in Frankfurt, Germany. Um, rapidly, by 1933, 10 years later, it had uh, left, and after a brief stop in Geneva, uh, it, matriculated to the United States, which foolishly let it in uh, with refugee status. We're seeing with Cuba what kind of refugees are allowed in and which ones are not. Uh, today, s similar thing, communists welcome, anti-communists not welcome. <laughs> and so they came over obviously in 1933 because most of them were Jewish and Hitler had claimed the chancellorship of Germany and the writing was definitely on the wall even by then that Jews should get out while they can and so they came over. Um, but its first kind of major salvo in critical theory was written in 1937. This is a essay or book. I mean, these things are all like 80 pages, so take them as you will. They call them essays. They usually publish them as short books called Traditional and Critical Theories by Max Horkheimer, who had assumed the uh, directorship of the Frankfurt School by that time. Max Horkheimer is a very unpleasant man. Um, the Traditional and Critical Theory divides the theoretical world into two domains. One of these they call traditional theory, and that's concerned with epistemic adequacy, as we phrased last night. That's concerned with understanding the world as it is. Remember, Marx said the point is not to understand the world, but to understand it so that you might change it. So then you have critical theory, which is separate, and it has the goal of changing the world. So it's going to examine the existing society against a idealized vision for that society and motivate social activism in particular. As we saw from Delgado and Stefanczyk in Critical Race Theory and Introduction, Critical Race Theory contains an activist element, unlike most theories. It's because it's a critical theory. The second dimension of a critical theory is this complaining, moralizing, push toward an idealized society that inspires social activism. And that is the wedding theory to praxis part that gives two dimensions that Herbert Marcuse was complaining about in 1964 when he wrote One Dimensional Man. He says that the capitalist consumer society flattens society down, makes everybody one dimensional, but what he means by one dimensional is lacking critical consciousness. And the point of a critical theory, picking at those threads of society, is to awaken a critical consciousness, to make you realize the depth of your servitude, in Marcuse's words, to make you realize the fact that you are miserable while you are happy. 
And that second dimension is called critical theory. And Marcuse is very clear as well, that Marcuse is very, very clear that what has to be done is awakening a sensibility that's guided by critical theory in order to change the world for what they call liberation. So Horkheimer writes traditional and critical theories in 1937. In the 1940s, he teams up with another neo-Marxist named Theodore Adorno, who's probably most famous for his um, frightening psychology book called The Authoritarian Personality, where he essentially writes a 900-page book explaining how right-wing equals authoritarian. Right, uh, authoritarianism is a full-out uh, right-wing trait. It is not something that can be present on the left at all, as a matter of fact, because they're liberatory. And people to this day, one of the first times I ever spoke to Sam Harris online, he argued with me and said left-wingers cannot be authoritarian by definition. He didn't know he was repeating Adorno, a neo-Marxist. So Horkheimer teams up with Adorno and they write this book in 1944, just before the end of the World War, and then they pick up in 1947 and put out a second edition. That book is called The Dialectic of Enlightenment. And everybody's like listening to my podcast. They're like, Hegel, yes. In fact, quick secret, the neo-Marxists existed to put Hegel back into Marx. More Hegel, not less. They thought that Marx had lost his way by the time he wrote Capital too focused on material and economic concerns, not focused enough on the ideas and culture, and culture as a mediator of ideas. Put the Hegel back in, add in Freud too, why not? What could go wrong? <laughs> and Max Weber and whatever else. So they write this book, The Dialectic of Enlightenment. The thesis of The Dialectic of Enlightenment is that the Enlightenment came out to eschew myth, to get rid of mythology, we're now going to be rational. This critique of enlightenment rationalism, the deep suspicion of enlightenment rationalism. We're now going to eschew myth in the enlightened world. We're going to be rational animals. We're going to be homo economicus or whatever it is now. We're going to be rationally operating in our own self-interest and so on. And they say, well, this has a dialectic to it. There are contradictions contained within that, and that dialectic is going to work itself out so that the reason itself becomes unreason, so that the rejection of myth itself becomes mythology. And you can kind of see how this presages the uh, postmodern movement, for those of you who are familiar with it, who believe that you know knowledge is a construct of power and so on. So the dialectic of enlightenment has the thesis that Western liberal societies by the very nature of the progression of the dialectic, almost like a force that's driving history outside of what anybody wants it to do or not, is to turn reason into unreason. So the enlightenment itself was a mistake. We're going to now question enlightenment rationalism. We're going to question everything built upon it. And uh, it's a pretty intense missive. It's difficult to read. It's very deeply invested in mythological analogy. Um, but this is the, it's considered the, full, clearest statement of what critical theory actually is. And it's 1944-47 for the first and second editions. Um, it's absolutely a full-throated assault on Western liberal democratic republics, which they hate. The system that it now thinks in has become irrational and has to be torn down. So these fellas come up with this stuff, and then Herbert Marcuse takes over directorship of the Frankfurt School and by, in 1955, he writes Eros and Civilization. This is about putting Freud into Marx. 
You can read it yourself. He's constantly talking about how the capitalist society uh, takes the libido and suppresses it and forces you to sublimate it into pr productive work. So all of the fun that you want to have, all of the interests that you have, all the sex you want to have, all of that gets bottled up and turned into productive work instead. And so we could just get rid of the capitalist engine and we could free up that libido and live liberated lives. So the whole sexual liberation movement has some pretty profound roots connected to Eros and civilization. This was another project that was very um, prominent in the, in, in the neo-Marxist tradition. This actually dips back to the culture Marxist, uh, George Lukács who in the 1910s was arguing the same thing and tried to use it to destroy Hungary and almost succeeded. Uh, sexual liberation was the key tool. So when you see all of the, you know, very adult themed stripper story hour or whatever, trans stripper story hour at the schools and let's teach like kids that are seven years old about masturbation and whatever else, you can see the history is repeating itself. So that's a cultural Marxist tool. Queer theory is that, but we're talking about critical race theory so we won't linger. So Marcuse picks all this up with Eros and Civilization. By the 1960s, he's fully radicalized. And then he writes in 1964, One-Dimensional Man. I've already given you the basic premise of that. Man has become one-dimensional because he lives in a consumerist society. He believes that traditional theory and science and reason and philosophy can solve the problems of the world. He's, they're so concerned with understanding that they're not reaching to higher levels of reason, higher levels of rationality. And if they adopted critical theory as a second dimension of theory, theoretical thought, if in other words, they became neo-Marxists, then because they're two-dimensional, they have more to say, more to understand, a second sight almost. And you can see how that would give you a certain advantage. If you've seen the, I mean, as a former mathematician, if you've seen Flatland, or if you know the story behind Flatland, which was a book before it was a film, you would understand you have these two-dimensional creatures and one figures out how to get into the third dimension and can do all these magical things. Well, if you have more dimensionality, you have more uh, freedom of movement, you have uh, more parameters in which you can operate. So this gives them a certain advantage when people don't realize that it's happening. So one dimensional man mentions also that he wants to cobble together, this is what I talked about last night, a functional movement made out of the feminists, the disgruntled sexual minorities, the disgruntled racial minorities, the outsiders of society who would be kind of the new left radical activists like the weather and underground that arose uh, in the wake and did the violence of the late 60s and early 70s uh, is just one example of such a group um, before going underground because people don't like violence and people got arrested and the next thing you know they're all K through 12 activists. How about that? Every one of them were like, what, how can we keep doing this without going to jail? I know, let's get into the schools, but it's not in schools, don't worry. Of course it's not in schools. CNN said so. <laughs> Marcuse in 1965 though writes an essay that is absolutely crucial to understanding the world that we live in, that's repressive tolerance. People who follow me will have listened to my four part podcast where I read through repressive tolerance in full and tried to explain it on the New Discourses podcast. If you haven't done that, you should check that out. It's a horrifying essay. We live in the logic of repressive tolerance. The thesis of repressive tolerance, this is, you know, we're talking what I would call the second generation of critical theory, the first generation being this very theoretical thing from Horkheimer, the second generation being Marcuse's very activist, very driven 
um, mentality. The, the thesis statement of that is that movements from the left must be tolerated, extended tolerance, even when they are violent. Movements from the right must not be extended tolerance, even to the point of censoring, and as he says, pre-censoring them, so that the thought that might preserve the status quo cannot even enter the mind. He even admittedly says this is censorship, even pre-censorship to be sure, but, and then he qualifies it with something like the, the existing media and, and social situation already censor left-wing thought, so it's fine. They get to retaliate. So this is, we must tolerate everything from the left, including violence. We must not tolerate anything from the right. If you can't connect that to the last year of your life, I don't know how to help you. We had literal riots. We suspended a pandemic for riots, looting, and arson. We had the now Vice President of the United States publish and promote a bail them out of jail fund. We had corrupt district attorneys around the country in our cities refusing to prosecute radical uprisings from the left. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden's laptop story, which was true, was completely stricken from social media. You don't want them to even be able to form the thought. Parler was nuked from orbit because right-wing people happened to be there. Apparently what happened on January 6th, which mostly seemed to involve people walking around and parading indoors inside the Capitol after being let in, although there was obviously some rioting and violence outside, was the worst thing that's happened since the Civil War or apparently since like a meteor struck and killed the dinosaurs or something, whatever the word of the day happens to be. Um, so you get this impression that there's a little bit of a tilted playing field. Of course, what they're saying is that they're leveling the playing field because they believe themselves the permanent excluded underdog. This is core to their theory. They believe that left-wing radical thought is viciously suppressed by a society that doesn't want it because we don't. And therefore, the playing field is not level. It's not that they're wrong. It's that they're being... Uh, suppressed. So we have to level the playing field by suppressing all right-wing everything to the point where you're not even allowed to hear the story. I got, a, I got struck down on Facebook for sharing um, a 20-second clip of Anthony Fauci one year earlier saying, don't wear masks. The only commentary I added to that was Anthony Fauci one year ago, but I was spreading misinformation even though I made a factual statement about that clip from like 60 minutes or whatever it was. Um, you get the impression that certain things are being repressed in the name of tolerance, whereas other things are being permitted in the name of tolerance and justice. We live in repressive tolerance. And it's a terrifyingly totalitarian and frightening essay. You should really go through the whole podcast. 1969, Marcuse has managed to become crazier. I don't know if he discovered LSD or something. <laughs> I mean, Marcuse worked originally, if you don't know this, for the OSS, which preceded the CIA. Um, when he came over from Germany and was given asylum, he was put in charge of, or put, put on, the, on, on the inside of the organization that was going to become the CIA. In case you wonder what's going on with that organization. <laughs> Where did that come from? So by 1969, he's crazier. He writes this essay, an essay on liberation. Liberation is the new name for communism. We're not doing vulgar Marxism anymore. Communism didn't work. 
Khrushchev had spoken. Khrushchev had told about what Stalin had done. Khrushchev being now at that time in the 50s in charge of Russia or the Soviet Union, there was no denying this. There was no, you know, oh, this is communist propaganda. No, he had come out and confessed to Stalin's crimes. Um, and there's no denying it. The failure in the Soviet Union of communism, the failure in the Eastern Bloc, the failure through other parts of Eastern Europe were undeniable. So Marcuse in SN Liberation begins by praising the revolution in China. It's going well. That's what he says. 1969 is in the middle of the Cultural Revolution, which was 66 through 76. Tens of millions of people were dying under Mao's Cultural Revolution. Children were being indoctrinated in their schools to attack their teachers and parents and grandparents. It was going well, is what Marcuse says right from the beginning. The revolution there is going well. The revolution in Vietnam is going well. The revolution in Cuba would be going well, except that it has too much Soviet influence and something went wrong there. But we should look to people like Castro and Shea anyway, because they have the right idea. Liberation movements are happening all around the world, and we're gonna, there's a sexual liberation movement on, there's a black liberation movement on that had started in the 50s, and Marcuse is now taking all of this liberation energy and he's trying to co-opt it within the neo-Marxist program. Of course, what was the goal of Marx? It was to liberate from capitalism. So liberation has always been a communist plan. Liberation sounds good, it, it isn't. It's something, it's liberation from the system, liberation from capitalism, liberation from being happy. And so Marcuse writes this insane essay, the first section of which, or chapter of which, again, is one of those things, is it a book, is it an essay, is titled A Biological Foundation for Socialism as a question. And his argument is that, like this has never been tried before, that we must change human nature to make it acceptable to liberation, to socialism. In fact, he defines liberation in that essay as socialism without the bureaucracies, because it'll work this time. Socialism without the bureaucracy. And to get there, we have to change man by introjecting a new morality into him, by creating a new moral paradigm in which he has to live until at the level of his biological needs, he needs liberation and socialism from the existing oppressive system. In other words, we're going to awaken a critical consciousness in him until he can't stand living in the society that he's living in to the point where it's at his level of needs, he can't function. In other words, and I think this is a, as good a confession as you can find, critical theory exists to induce psychopathologies, which are by definition psychological states that make you incapable of dealing with reality as it is to the point where they impact your ability to live your daily life. Marcuse says we have to do this. When he says biological, he even has a footnote and says, by biological, I don't mean really biological. I don't mean eugenics. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't, I don't know. They're tricky with their language. But in that first section, he says that we have to create a biological foundation for socialism. We have to change human nature in order to open up the West for socialism. In the second section, he writes, the, the title of it is called The New Sensibility. And this is where I mentioned last night, when Crenshaw puts out the intersectionality as a sensibility, and I put these two pieces together, something clicked, and I realized, oh, thinking in terms of all of these intersecting power dynamics is the new sensibility. Thinking in terms of position 
is social position against the neo-Marxist descriptions of various identity-based power dynamics is the new sensibility that Marcuse was calling for. And in that, he says that we need a new sensibility, the old sensibility, and the reason that the revolutions in the Soviet Union, for example, ended up failing, is that the old sensibility came with. People still thought in the old paradigms of oppression and dominance, therefore, once freed up, they became oppressors. Paulo Freire is writing literally almost the same thing in Brazil in his Pedagogy of the Oppressed at this time. Literally almost the same thing, that you have to have this new kind of sensibility coming through. And his new sensibility, he says, is gonna give way to a new rationality. And a new rationality will give way to a new reality. And by that, he means a liberated socialism. The essay continues to call for solidarity, solidarity across all axes of oppression. In that section, he's calling out and saying the energy exists in these various, just like in One Dimensional Man, these various um, oppressed groups, especially he mentioned, he has a whole couple of paragraphs dedicated to the so-called ghetto populations to stoke up what was rising within the black liberation, black power and black nationalist movements to turn those into energy for the new left. And so out of Marcuse, we have kind of three things to mention, and then we'll jump track for a minute. Out of Marcuse, we have kind of three things to mention. We have the emergence of the new left, which he's considered kind of the father of. The new left is the kind of the radical uh, anti-war, very frankly neo-Marxist left that had abandoned old Marxism, vulgar Marxism, and taken a new track. Uh, they characterized themselves by their vocal opposition to the Vietnam War primarily, and that was supposed to be what made them new, but it was in fact that they had abandoned vulgar Marxism for neo-Marxism. And so the left is now characterized not by being materialist Marxist, but by being culturally Marxist. Secondly, we have the Frankfurt School continuing with Jürgen Habermas taking over, and Jürgen Habermas is irrelevant. This is some interesting stuff. He softened critical theory as he went. By the 80s, he's criti criticizing the stuff that was happening in the 60s but nobody cares, he's just a philosopher because Herbert Marcuse had brought in people from those radicalized activist groups and incorporated them into his vision, in particular his doctoral student, Angela Davis, who is still alive and still very much relevant to the prison and police abolition movements at the heart of what's happened over the last year. She endorsed Joe Biden for president, by the way, on Russia today, of all things. <laughs> she also, in 1977, wrote a letter of support to Jim Jones in his last year, because little do people realize Jim Jones wasn't a crazy lunatic Christian, he was a Marxist, and his movement was fundamentally Marxist. And so she wrote, or, sorry, she didn't write a letter, it was actually on the radio. She was on the radio and it's been transcribed. She radioed in a, a statement of support for Jim Jones. We're with you, we're behind you, your movement and ours are the same, blah, blah, blah. So, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Um, but that spawns the, the black feminists, is ultimately what the Angela Davis direction spawns. Angela Davis, of course, got involved in this prison and police stuff, but she also got involved in K-12 education after um, getting arrested for seeming to kidnap a, I think, federal judge with a shotgun or something like that, because these are good people, as you can tell. Big fan of Cuba, big fan of what's going on in China, 
refused to condemn the, you know, she's for liberation, refused to condemn the imprisonment of dissidents uh, in communist regimes, et cetera. So liberation means something pretty polarized, pretty repressive tolerance style. So three things happen at once, and you have the Frankfurt School falling into philosophical irrelevance under Jürgen Habermas. Not to say his philosophy is not interesting, I guess it is, but it's not relevant to the world today and what's happening because the track went separately into black liberationism and black feminism and a raft of other new left movements. And this emergence of the new left, which was activist and scholarly infiltrating the university was part of the deal. Now I'm gonna jump backwards a hot minute and then we'll talk about postmodernism. So this is where cultural Marxism becomes relevant because Antonio Gramsci had his plan that he talked about in the prison notebooks. It's not clear what influence he had on certain other characters like Mao Zedong, but the statement that is pretty solid throughout literature on this, scholarly literature on this, is that Mao did what Gramsci thought. Mao maybe would have had access to Gramsci. Gramsci was popular in the 40s and early 50s in China, but then was banned um, and didn't reemerge until the 80s, so it's not clear what, what Mao had read and what Mao had not. Moscow had it by 37, so it's possible, um, not known. But what Mao did in his cultural revolution is what people like Herbert Marcuse and Rudy Deutschke looked at and saw as something that works, this cultural revolution that they then renamed the Long March Through the Institutions. And whether or not Mao knew what Gramsci wrote, it's basically the same kind of thing. What Gramsci had said was that we have this cultural hegemony, and cultural hegemony can only, it's like a force field of values, norms, expectations, behaviors, what Ibram Kendi calls policies, it's the system in every bit of its manifestations, everything that happens and why it happens and how. And this thing is like keeping out communism because it's, it's like a force field, okay? So he says the only way to beat that is to get inside the key cultural institutions that generate this cultural hegemony, create a counter hegemony from within and break them apart. This is cultural Marxism, which he derived from his working very early on in the, in the 1910s with George Lukács and with um, Max Horkheimer and some of the other people who went on to found the Frankfurt School. And so cultural hegemony, he said, has to be beaten by infiltrating the major cultural institutions, and he named five. Those are religion, family, education, media, and law, with a special emphasis put on education. Critical race theory arose out of law. That's how it got into law. Education. Very rapidly, critical race theory got into education. Paulo Ferreri was a Gramscian. That's not in doubt. He was putting it into education. That was picked up by people like Henry Giroux, who is a name you probably haven't heard, but he's probably one of the most influential people on our society. In 1980, he published, or 1981 thereabouts, he published his first major book. What had happened was he had read The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and then later he had actually met Paulo Ferreri. He seemed to have become radicalized. He talks about the guy like somebody would talk about a cult leader. It's kind of weird and fawning to read how he writes about Paulo Ferreri and his, his, his influence. And Giroux's books are totally mental. Like if you wanna see the melting pot, the mixing pot where all this stuff came together, it was in the education theory stuff because all they cared about was the mission. All they cared about was operational success. So they picked from everything. Where you have Ferrari citing Lenin and Mao, and or sorry, he doesn't cite Mao, he just praises him. 
uh, citing Lenin and citing Marx and, you know, very purely Marxist. Drew's not quite so coarse, not so vulgar, but he's citing Ferrari, he's citing Marcuse, he's citing um, Horkheimer, he's citing Adorno. The neo-Marxist element there is undeniable. And even throughout, you know, recent papers, and, and like I mentioned last night, Alison Bailey's paper from 2017 in Hypatia, The Privilege Preserving Epistemic Pushback, she has a whole section about neo-Marxism being integral to the crit critical pedagogy project. So that's really how that all mixed into our society. So this becomes very uh, kind of relevant within that new left milieu. And um, cultural Marxism, though, was going to infiltrate those institutions and change them from within. And of course, we see that. We see that in every single one of the ones mentioned. It's crept into religion. They've been fighting it vigorously in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think we have a Marxist pope. It's certainly within Presbyterian church. It's certainly within the Episcopal church. It's certainly within Buddhism, Islam on the liberal side, etc. It's infiltrating into every religion. And its goal is to create one kind of giant ecumenical faith that uses the trappings of, say, Catholicism to preach social justice, or uses the trappings of evangelicism to preach social justice. They're all saying the same thing using different language. And that's actually what Marcuse calls for in the, in the uh, essay on liberation, because he says, to do this, to get this new sensibility, we have to create a new language. The old saying I mentioned last night is that communists share your vocabulary, but they don't share your dictionary. They use the same words and they mean something different by them that's specialized to their second dimensional thinking, their critical theory. They have specialized definitions. And so it's infiltrated into faith. They're obviously trying to destroy childhood innocence and the family. They're criticizing the idea of the nuclear family that was explicitly on the Black Lives Matter mission website before they took that down. <laughs> They're like, wait, people see that? <laughs> Destroying the idea of fatherhood explicitly. They want to replace uh, the family with the institution. Everybody says with the state. They have an intermediate step. It's the institution. These people think in terms of institutions. Institutions are the fundamental unit of society within critical theories. And the state is just the largest umbrella institution. So your family is going to be replaced by an institution, whether that's these weird experiments that they did in Europe where they put people in orphanages for no reason, where they try to get rid of parental uh, involvement where they're trying to, you know, you know, we see the NEA, the, the teachers union talking about how it's the school's jobs to parent and the parents' jobs to listen to the teachers union. They're trying to, just, they've, they've filtered into the family. And then education, we talked about media. I think I've mentioned CNN, MSNBC, and Joy Reid and Mark Monty Hill like a few times so far. Uh, it's all throughout the media. The media has become a critical theory propaganda arm, uh, at least where it's a corporate press. Alternative press obviously is different, but that's throttled because of repressive tolerance. And it's in law, and that's where critical race theory was particularly poignant because it uh, is originally, for the first like four years or something, a, a legal theory. Um, maybe it's just three years that it was just a legal theory. Um, we could figure out how many years it is, not many. So it's into all these institutions. They're turning the institutions from within. The idea, I mean, some people refer to this as like a cordyceps process. That's a, if you don't know what cordyceps is, it's this fungus that zombifies bugs and it makes them behave in certain ways and then it grows out of their dead body uh, into a fungus. It's what it does, is it infiltrates an institution, takes over the institution, uh, kills it, wears its skin as a suit, and parades around while draining all of its resources, uh, as Marxists would do. It targets wealthy institutions, by the way, because this is a disease of the 
lower upper class who are resentful that they're not the upper upper class and that they are luxurious enough to be able to entertain these luxury beliefs. They are the overproduced bourgeoisie who don't know how else to find meaning in their life. And this kind of social activism can be very tempting. It taps into their reservoirs of guilt that they have for their success that they can't otherwise explain, gives them meaning and purpose. Also brings them lots of attention, which if they're celebrities, they really like. So this is the neo-Marxist cultural Marxist element of critical race theory. The postmodern element, I just touch on briefly because cynical theories covers it. Postmodernism arose in, out of all of these milieus in the 1960s where neo-Marxist is like a criticism of Marxism in certain ways that retains most of its essential characteristics. Alf Haben, we'll talk about that more later. Postmodernism uh, post is actually post-Marxism. It's kind of given up on Marxism. It's cynical and nihilistic. Its track is probably more, it certainly you know, was created by Marxists who were becoming disillusioned. Many of them supported Mao and then figured out he was a bad guy too. And they came, became disillusioned with communism totally. And they came up with these entirely new ways to think about society and their nihilism and, dis and despair. Because liberalism can't be right, capitalism can't be right, but communism can't be right either and religion can't be right either. So none of these things are right, so there's nothing. Nothing. Nothing Lebowski or whatever, right? So there's absolutely nothing for them, and they've abandoned Marxism, but they've retained the dialectical process in a modified form that we call deconstruction. Deconstruction doesn't seek to take the thesis and hit it with an antithesis and arrive at a synthesis. It's what also Theodore Adorno in 66 called a negative dialectic. It takes the thesis and it hits it with its antithesis and leaves it there at the particulars. Break everything apart and leave it there. Deconstruct, take apart. Take apart every meaning structure, hollow out every meaning structure. There are kind of three main characters. Of course, there are more. We could talk about Richard Rorty. We could talk about Deleuze and Guattari. We could talk about all these different people, uh, Frederick Jameson, et cetera. They're all relevant in their own ways. They're all important. There are many prominent postmodernists. I want to touch on three, two of whom we talk about rather extensively in Cynical Theories, one of whom we mention and don't talk about extensively. And those are Michel Foucault, of course, Jacques Derrida, which is funny. I think his actual given name is Jackie Derrida. His parents were big American fans. Jackie Derrida and uh, John Baudrillard, who was later and who understood the media environment because he had read Marshall McLuhan, where nobody else had, who was a bit nuts, but understood some things. What's that? John Baudrillard, B-A-U-D-R-I-L-L-A-R-D. I can't believe I did that in one try. And so Michel Foucault, his basic premise, this is what we call the postmodern knowledge principle in um, cynical theories after I wrestled Helen to the ground and said, we can't call it the epistemological principle. We cannot use that word that many times. Let's call it knowledge. But it's the belief that knowledge is socially constructed and it's socially constructed in the service of power, not necessarily intentionally. The people who have the power to decide what is knowledge decide what is knowledge in a way that's ultimately self-serving. And so knowledge is power. Foucault called it power knowledge. He believed that each culture is a contingent object that's contained within itself. It has its own truth regime, its own epistem, its own set of propositions that are true. And for Foucault, actual objective truth not only is unaccessible, it's irrelevant. Because the, the, the process of political power that allows somebody to authenticate an idea or be authoritative on an idea as true is what's really relevant. So for Foucault, he's his, his work has been summarized. I don't think this is a quote from him directly, but I've conflated some things. And it's that if a, true if, a, if a truth claim is actually true or is actually false is irrelevant. 
What's important is the power dynamic and being able to determine that somebody gets to say that it is and people will believe it. And he thought that this was a cultural product that exists in each culture and that the power dynamics are always self-interested and thus self-sustaining. So he has a little bit of critique, critical theory built in, but he was primarily describing himself as a historian, AKA historiographer, uh, digging through history and telling a very biased revisionist history on things like the history of madness, the history of the prison, the history of the clinic, um, history of sexuality, et cetera. Jacques Derrida was the big deconstructionist. He comes out of the post-structural line, and so I'm gonna draw a line backwards for a minute that isn't gonna make a lot of sense right now. Post-structuralism arose out of structuralism. Structuralism arose out of existentialism. Existentialism arose out of romanticism. Romanticism arose out of the precursors to the French Revolution with Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So that's a very important line of thought that hits postmodernism that does not come into critical theory specifically. Not directly anyway. They use other parts of Rousseau. So Jacques Derrida believed that language can't convey meaning. He had this, I don't want to get into the depths of it, this whole idea of the signified and the signifier. Uh, language is composed of signs. It's put together in webs of words that form a discourse, and the discourse is a web of meaning about how words relate to one another, and that's where all the meaning is contained. Each word is a sign. It points to something like an idea, but he said that the pointing is called a signifier and that the signifier never refers to a signified, an actual object in the, word, in the world. It only refers to more words. It refers to the words in a sense that it is. Like if you look up a word in the dictionary, you see more words, and it refers to the words that it is not. So if you look up the word house, you have to compare it against the other words that are not there, like mansion or hut or dog. And all of those webs of meaning are there, but, but meaning itself is infinitely deferred. You can never get to the real through language. You can never read a text and say, this is what it meant because this is what the author meant. Roland Barthes called that the death of the author. Jacques Derrida took it to like the highest level you could possibly imagine. There is absolutely no way to understand this. But what he actually also believed is that words tend to exist very frequently in hierarchical binary pairs, male and female, where you can't understand one word without looking at its other, and he analyzed that through a theory called phalagocentrism, which is that words have basically straight male power attached to them. We favor the straight male thing, and we disfavor the gay or female thing, and therefore, there's a power dynamic in words, like male and female. You can only understand them in opposition to one another, and a lot of Derridian activism, therefore, a lot of Derridian deconstruction is, let's preserve that binary and turn the power upside down. The future is female. John Baudrillard is the Matrix. If you've seen the Matrix, you know John Baudrillard. John Baudrillard actually watched the Matrix and he said, that's not me. But his most famous book, which is Simulation and Simulacra, is actually featured in the Matrix when Neo's got his little contraband at the beginning and he's hiding it in a book and he tucks it in a drawer before he meets Morpheus. The book is Simulation and Simulacra, or Simulacra and Simulation. John Baudrillard. What Baudrillard believed is that we live because of the media environment in hyper-reality. We have replaced, we, we have almost like a map of the entire universe. It's a perfect one-to-one -one map, and we have chosen to live in the map rather than in the actual terrain. And we believe that if we change the map, then that's all that matters. Reality bends accordingly. 
He called this hyper-reality. Hyper-reality is what is more real than real. So you can think of the airbrushed model, more real than real. You can think of the hyper-flavored smoothie. It's more strawberry than strawberry, or whatever it is. It's a vocal distance reference for those who know his strawberry thing. It's very good. He believed that we live in this state, and if you don't understand that what he's saying is that because of the environment that we live in, we have access to what might be called a second reality, and that second reality is largely linguistically constructed, and we're kind of swimming in this linguistically constructed world, and we believe that if we just change things in the world of abstractions, then that's good enough. Reality will accord um, a pseudo-reality, as I've also referred to it then everything, that's how people are going to live. He was mostly warning about this. He had this very famous essay he wrote about the Gulf War that he said the Gulf War never happened. It was basically things happened in the Middle East that were warlike, and CNN created a war out of it. All, you know, hyper-real fake war. And that's what people believed the Gulf War was, and so that's what the Gulf War was, a very kind of pessimistic analysis. And it's because we live in this world that this stuff works. You can only, you know, on, on, you can go on Twitter and you can create a new avatar and you can change your picture and you can change your name and you're somebody new. And you can start to live that. And you can very easily groom yourself or be groomed into new uh, unreal identities. But this is mostly queer theory. But this also taps into the idea that we're going to focus, hyper-focus on race. We're going to think in terms of these social constructions that are somehow structurally determinant. Social constructions are linguistic and political constructs that then have material consequences. And so it's all still relevant. This, these postmodern ideas are the milieu in which the people, the activists that we talked about in cynical theories in the 1980s and 1990s were looking at and saying, wow, these are weapons. Let's make people live in hyper-reality. Let's hollow out meaning through Derridian deconstruction so that we can mold the world as we will. Let's criticize everything fairly ruthlessly in terms of how it's just a power dynamic and localized knowledge and there is no access to truth. And every claim that you have access to truth is actually an assertion of power from Foucault. We could also tie in, I guess, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard here, who wrote in The Postmodern Condition in 1979, a section on legitimation by pyrology, which sounds very complicated. Legitimation by pyrology means we go with the consensus. We believe consensus is truth. He's warning, this is not a good idea, but this is the nature of the world. Whatever the consensus is, is real. And so you can see the attempt to weaponize this in the manufacture of consensus. How? With repressive tolerance. You believe the wrong thing? We'll silence you. There's a consensus in the medical community about racism being a public health threat. Look, every, article, every third article in The Lancet now covers it. There's a consensus now about whatever the issue is, whether it's climate change, racism, the virus, the pandemic, or whatever. We're going to create a forced consensus by shutting out all alternative opinions. They've weaponized that concept. That's postmodernism applied. That's why Helen and I called it applied postmodernism in uh, cynical theories. And it turns out that the people who applied it were the uh, neo-Marxists. So I'm gonna read a couple of things to you. Um, one of them is really long, so I might not read the whole thing. So just to be very clear that we are dealing with, in critical race theory, a neo-Marxist movement, I'm gonna turn to critical race theory, the key writings that form the movement. This is from the introduction. And who did they say organized critical race theory? organized by a collection of neo-Marxist intellectuals. Well, there you go. <laughs> Former New Left activists, ex-counterculturalists, 
That's a nice way to put people who blew up the Capitol and stuff. And other varieties of oppositionalists in law schools, the, conf uh, the Conference on Critical Legal Studies, where critical race theory was developed, established itself as a network of openly leftist law teachers, students, and practitioners committed to exposing and challenging the ways American law served to legitimize an oppressive social order. So, undoubtedly, critical race theory was organized by a collection of neo-Marxists. How can I prove, there was a question last night, that this is neo-Marxist? Well, read critical race theory, uh, the key writings that form the movement, at least the introduction of it, which is very long. It's like 30-something, 40 pages, something like that. It's actually very long. I was going to read it as a podcast. I was like, this is going to take 10 hours. Um, it is the first half of that sentence, organized by a collection of neo-Marxist intellectuals. Critical race theory. There you go. So postmodernism, how did that get in here? Well, you know, it was in the milieu, it was in the water. Postmodernism was getting picked up by all of kind of the feminist activists in particular. They picked it up at, at Yale Law, at uh, Columbia. All these kind of Ivy schools were picking up postmodernism in the feminism, or in the English departments primarily, but the feminists were the ones taking it up because it allowed them to deconstruct gender, which is what they wanted to do most in the world. And so black feminists were very interested in using this to deconstruct other things. And Kimberly Crenshaw had the insight, following the other black feminists, that there was going to be no way to deconstruct an, imp an imposed racial category, an imposed system of oppression. And so all of a sudden, she found the magic sauce to combine neo-Marxism and postmodernism, because postmodernism, like liberalism, would slowly deconstruct a socially constructed racial category, and it wouldn't mean anything one way or another. But Kimberly Crenshaw said, well, that wouldn't be very useful for identity politics. And I don't mean the civil rights movement. Identity politics is a term coined in the Combahee River Collective in 1977. Combahee River Collective was radical new left activists. It was black feminists who were offshoots of Herbert Marcuse. It was neo-Marxists. And so it wouldn't be useful for identity politics. But where she goes into the postmodern and liberal criticism, and I have a very long quote. I don't know if I'll read all of it. There's some important stuff here, though, and I've read this on the podcast. It's in the conclusion section of um, Mapping the Margins from 1991, her most influential paper. Uh, she goes into this long discussion of anti-essentialism, uh, but then she says, I'll just skip some of this to save some time, but she says, one version of, of anti-essentialism, this is, she's going to talk about postmodern deconstruction, embodying what might be called the vulgarized social construction thesis, is that since all categories are socially constructed, there is no such thing as, say, blacks or women. Pretty wild, there's no such thing as women. And thus it makes no sense to continue reproducing those categories by organizing around them identity politics. She says, but to say that a category such as race or gender is socially constructed is not to say that that category has no significance on our world. On the contrary, a large and continuing project for subordinated people, and indeed one of the projects for which postmodern theories have been very helpful, is thinking about the way power has clustered around certain categories and is exercised against others. This project attempts to unveil the processes of subordination and the various ways those processes are experienced by people who are subordinated and people who are privileged by them, neo-Marxism, at the identity politics level. That's what she's doing. It is then a project that presumes that categories have meaning and consequences. This project's most pressing problem in many, if not most cases, is not the existence of the categories, but rather the particular values attached to them and the way that those values foster and create social hierarchies. Cultural Marxism. 
We're going to keep the categories, she says. We're not going to deconstruct the identity categories because the categories are given meaning through naming, through the imposition of meaning onto them. And so she says, and this is a very important paragraph in the history of the world, this is not to deny the process of categorization is itself an exercise of power, but the story is much more complicated and nuanced than that. First, the process of categorizing, or in identity terms, naming, is not unilateral. That's what I was saying. People like the white race who created themselves as the archetype of humanity, apparently according to their critical race definition, have the power to do this. It's not unilateral. Subordinated people can and do participate, sometimes even subverting the naming process in empowering ways. One need only think about the historical subversion of the category black or the current transformation of queer to understand the categorization is not a one-way street. Clearly there is unequal power, but there is nonetheless some degree of agency that people can and do exert in the, pos in the politics of namings. And it is important to note that identity, this is where we get really important, continues to be a site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups, identity politics. We can all recognize the distinction between the claims I am black and that I am a person who happens to be black. I am black takes the socially imposed identity and empowers it as an anchor of subjectivity. I am black becomes not simply a statement of resistance, but also a positive discourse of self-identification intimately linked to celebratory statements like the black nationalist, black is beautiful. I am a person who happens to be black, on the other hand, achieves self-identification by straining for a certain universality. In effect, I am first a person. I'm not like you, I'm black, is what she's actually arguing for. And for a concomitant dismissal of the imposed category, black as contingent, circumstantial, non-determinant. There's truth in both characterizations, of course, but they function quite differently depending on the political context. At this point in history, 1991, a strong case can be made that the most critical resistance strategy for disempowered groups is to occupy and defend a politics of social location and intersectional new sensibility rather than to vacate or destroy it. What I said about sensibility is not in the original text, by the way. Vulgar constructionism thus dis distorts the possibilities for a meaningful identity politics by conflating at least two separately, separate but closely linked manifestations of power. One is the power exercised simply through the process of categorization, which sometimes is called a violence of categorization because they like to exaggerate that way and their words have special meanings. The other, the power to cause that categorization to have social and material consequences. While the former power facilitates the latter, the political implications of challenging one over the other matter greatly. So, Kimberly Crenshaw is saying postmodernism is very useful as long as we don't deconstruct identity categories because identity categories are useful for identity politics. And in fact, our neo-Marxism depends on it. Our identity-based now neo-Marxism, our identity-based cultural Marxism depends upon not deconstructing the categories where we can operate our grift. That's her argument. We're going to get rid of the ideas of liberalism, of universal humanity, of treating people as individuals, of content of character. We're going to get rid of those and we're going to focus on the category. We're going to do identity first, identity politics, not the civil rights movement, I am a man, but rather I am black and you are Asian and you are queer and you are this and you are that and as a this and as a that, positionality must be intentionally engaged. This will be a new sensibility she has in a couple of places in the paper for the way that we're going to think about things. She says it's not meant to be a totalizing theory of identity, but it's a new sensibility, don't worry. 
So this is the fusion of postmodernism. This is where the one ring is forged. She says in a footnote in this paper that she sees intersectionality as a provisional concept linking contemporary politics with postmodern theory. This is the fusion of neo-Marxism and postmodernism being done in this paper. You've heard the crucial thing, the vulgar construction thesis of postmodernism is too vulgar. It doesn't take into account that we have to use racial imposed categories and think in systems of power, and we have to start identifying as divisive things. And then we see this after it finally breaks loose in the 2010s into society poll that I referenced earlier, that race relations are plummeting. Wonder why. I wonder why. We see why. So this is what critical race theory and intersectionality are all about. Its neo-Marxist roots are actually undeniable. Um, its fusion to postmodernism is undeniable. This is how they fused. These activists, these neo-Marxist activists saw certain parts of postmodern theory useful, in particular Foucault's idea that knowledge is just another assertion of power. Truth is just another assertion of power. It's just another thing to apply critical theory to and to put into the frame of power dynamics. And all of a sudden, reality falls out of the picture. The thing that was stopping the neo-Marxists was that reality was still important to them. They were still modernists. Postmodernists are not so constrained, and they picked up these weapons and they put them into application. So that's the fusion. That's the creation of uh, applied postmodernism or critical constructivism, as it were. So just a few other relevant movements to mention. I mentioned critical pedagogy already, so I won't do that. You see how that kind of is like the fertilizer in which all of this grew, where the melting pot of all these ideas kind of came together because there's a purpose. Um, this, the new left spawned a set of movements. One of those is the, it didn't spawn liberationism, it grafted into liberationism. Liberationism is what we've already talked about as well, is the idea that we're now going to be liberated from consumer capitalism and all other systems of power and oppression, including identity-based ones. Uh, within that, black liberationism arises. The goal, if we read uh, Ladson, Billings, and Tate, who I mentioned last night, Gloria Ladson, Billings, and William Tate, in their paper from 1995 toward a critical race theory of education, they mentioned that the goal of what they were doing is to make race and in italics the central construct for understanding inequality. They wanted to foreground, or in their words, center race into everything. And black liberationism was a very radical movement. It emerged in the 1950s, got co-opted and picked up by the neo-Marxists, the ghetto population that Marcuse is referencing, and became very uh, neo-Marxist in origin. And you have the fist, which is a communist symbol. What a shock. Black feminism emerges out of this, and this is the birthplace of intersectionality. Black feminism emerges out of this because now you have feminists who are also black liberationists, and what they ended up figuring out how to do is to turn their analyses inward on themselves. They said, well, the black liberation movement's not very feminist, and it keeps screwing over black women, and the feminist movement's too white, and it keeps screwing over black women. We need a different kind of analysis. So black feminism emerges very radical with the intention of creating a new way of thinking that's going to be the seeds of this intersectionality that Crenshaw's just talking about, and this positional new sensibility. So they hold a lot of responsibility for that. And I'll read to you uh, the mission statement from the Combahee River Collective, the first paragraph of that, to give you a sense of where they're coming from. So this was a collective formed in 1974. This statement was put out in either 77 or 78, I'd have to check, um, preceding Crenshaw by a decade at least though. And they say, we are a collective of black feminists who have been meeting together since 1974. 
During that time, we have been involved in the process of defining and clarifying our politics, while at the same time doing political work within our own group and in coalition with other progressive organizations and movements. The most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committing to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and anti-class, or sorry, and class oppression, and see our particular task, the development of an integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis, H word, Hegel, the synthesis of these oppressions creates the conditions of our lives. As black women, we see black feminism as the logical political movement to combat the manifold and simultaneous oppressions that all women of color face. So you can also read in this, the intersectionality grew out of an attempt to get all of the other, under a banner of, banner of solidarity, all of the other uh, oppressed minority groups to carry water for black feminism as a movement, as an ideological movement. Remember, this isn't people. It's an ideological movement, it's a political position. Now, of course, I can't, and we'll close here, I can't mention the roots of critical race theory without mentioning the most proximate root of all, which is the critical legal studies movement from which it emerged. The critical legal studies movement um, was a new left project, consistent with Antonio Gramsci's idea of getting this into the institutions, uh, to put new left neo-Marxism and Marxism into law and it was gaining a lot of steam through the 70s and into the 80s. And um, it's probably just best to, again, summarize what it is, reading from critical race theory, the key writings that form the movement. They write, critical race theory, like the critical legal studies movement with which we are often allied, rejects the prevailing orthodoxy that scholarship should or could be neutral and objective. So that's what it's about. The law is not going to be able to be neutral or objective. We saw that as a key principle of critical race theory last night. We believe that legal scholarship about race in America can never be written from a distance of detachment, God's eye view from nowhere I mentioned last night, or with an attitude of objectivity. To the extent, though because of the postmodernism too, right? Because of the postmodernism. There's no objectivity, because there's no objective standpoint, because it's all just culturally contingent. To the extent that racial power is exercised legally and ideologically, legal scholarship about race is an important site for the construction of that power, and thus always a factor, if only ideologically in the economy of racial power itself. To use a phrase from the existentialist tradition, there is no exit, no scholarly perch outside of the social dynamics of racial power from which, uh, sorry, I lost my track. Uh, outside of dynamics of racial power from which merely to observe and analyze scholarship, the formal production, identification, and organization of what will be called knowledge is inevitably political. You can see the postmodernism there now. Knowledge is intrinsically political. So critical race theory emerges out of the critical legal studies movement, the critical legal, uh, by putting race into that equation, the critical legal studies movement existed to put neo-Marxist politics into law, and so the chain is connected. Critical legal studies is, um, something that was designed specifically to nitpick at the law, to pull apart the fabric of society legally, to say that the law is biased toward certain vested interests that are self-perpetuating and so on. And so that's the milieu out of which critical race theory emerges. And I know I've talked a long time, so I'll wrap up here with this. These are the ideological roots though. It's a fusion of neo-Marxism and postmodernism. That happened primarily through the 80s and by 1991 in Mapping the Margins, Crenshaw codifies it. They've picked up the postmodern tools, especially the idea, especially the idea that knowledge itself is an expression of power, of political power. There is no objective standpoint from which you could 
do law or science or gain knowledge or express knowledge or teach. Teaching is political, research is political, everything is political because of this. And critical race theory specifically bursts forth as part of the cultural Marxist project to insinuate itself into law by, as Gloria Ladsden Billings and William Tate said, making race the central construct for understanding inequality, by centering race. So this is where critical race theory comes from over the last 100 years. This is the 100 year long shaft of the tip of the spear that is critical race theory. And critical race theory is the tip of the spear because it works, because we're very sensitive about race. Uh, and it's very easy for us to tip into what, for example, Shelby Steele called white guilt and to just cave in front of their manipulations. So thanks for listening. This is the near ideological roots. We'll talk about the deeper ones here in a few minutes. Thank you.